Welcome back to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Today, we welcome Dr. Sharza Green back to the podcast. Dr. Green received her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Arizona in 1990, and the focus of her practice has been women's health and integrative medicine for the past 20 years. She's passionate about learning new things and teaching others, and she's formulated FabuVag, the all-natural vaginal moisturizer. Today, we're going to be talking about supplements for menopause part two, and we started this series back in March before everything changed. And we're just getting back to it now. During the podcast, we discuss how to pick the best supplements, specific supplements for certain menopause symptoms, the best supplement to combat inflammation, and why it's so important, why magnesium supplementation is important for menopausal women, and stay to the end to find out all about a supplement that has been proven in studies to help with weight loss. At the end of the episode, make sure you visit drmichellegordon.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find the show notes plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoy the episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you're always the first to know when each episode is released. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for all the five-star reviews. If you haven't left a review yet, please take the time to review the podcast. This helps more women find it and get the help they need during the disruption of menopause. No one should have to go it alone. And thank you again for being a part of the menopause movement. Now, let's get to Dr. Green and Supplements for Menopause, Part 2. All right, Dr. Green, so glad to have you back. You're a recurring guest here on the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm always happy to have you here. And we have Supplements for Menopause Part 2. We started Supplements for Menopause Part 1 way back in March. And then the kind of world went crazy for us all, and, and it just wasn't important. So now we're back That's with right. you for Supplements for Menopause Part 2. And this probably is going to be a three-part series. So let's go ahead and just move right into it. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure to be back. And thank you for all the great work that you're doing for the mm. menopausal women. Yeah, it's great. We love it here. Yeah. So today I, I have an outline. I have a few things and make a few notes. So I'll stick to the, to the plan. Great. Uh, if you have ever worked with me or heard me talk, I'm a very big proponent of uh, fish oil or omega-3 fatty acids. And as you know, when you go to the store, there is like at least a million or two million <laughs> varieties on the shelves. And you're like, you know, how do I pick a good fish oil? So I want to talk to you about that because fish oil can be so beneficial, but we've got to be careful how to choose a good one. Number one is that when it comes to fish oil, there are two ingredients that we really, that I really focus on. One is EPA the other one is DHA. So you want to have the, the minimum requirements for EPA and DHA in the supplement that you're taking. So when you look at the back of the label and it says serving size two capsules, look below that and it says each serving size contains how much EPA and how much DHA. It should break it apart, list the milligrams separate from each other for EPA versus DHA. And the reason for that is that it, if it doesn't, do so, there's a lot of fluff in there. So on the front of the label, it may say, this supplement contains 2000 milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids, including EPA and DHA. That does not really tell us anything. It could have 50 milligrams of EPA and 100 milligrams of DHA, whereas we actually want a minimum of at least 600 of EPA, 400 of DHA, depending on the condition 
that we're trying to kind of help. Can you just tell us, tell us why you recommend those particular dosages? Absolutely. Actually, that's the next thing I, I wanted to talk to you about. When it comes to, and what I'm actually citing, these are studied. So this is backed by studies that the mm-hmm. claims that are made, it's not just, you know, not just opinion. What they, they say. Is right, that just your right. opinion? Like, <laughs> no. Although you know, my experience, you know, as tw- twenty-one years, you know, doing this, mm-hmm. you know, my opinion is biased towards it too because I've seen it firsthand. Sure. But first of all, omega three fatty acids are very important for cognition, so for your memory. And as we know, a lot of uh, menopausal women, as we go through menopause, we may notice a change in our memory. And cognitive function. Now for cognitive function part of it, the DHA part is more important than the EPA. So I always say the DHA based on the study 580 milligrams, I rounded up 600 milligrams of DHA per day. Okay. Okay. But the total should be at least a thousand milligrams between EPA and DHA. So that's for cognitive function and memory. Then for depression, it's actually been studied for depression. Now for that, the EPA part is more important than the, than the DHA part. So you want to have at least a thousand to fifteen hundred milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids, but 60% or more of it should come from EPA. So that's when I say, okay, 600 milligrams of EPA at least a day. We've heard that it's good for the heart. Why is it, or we think that it's good for the heart. The reason is because it does lower the triglycerides. Now it's not a direct connection, but we are assuming that since it's lowering the triglycerides, it would help the heart. Well, let's just talk about that for a second. Do you know if these studies were done on women or were these studies done on men? I don't know. Okay. Uh, and and it's it's interesting because until the Women's Health Initiative back in, mm-hmm. you know, the late 90s, right? All the studies were done on men and women have a very different heart attack profile than men do. And so it's really interesting just that because we live in a patriarchy and men only the men have only thought about the men, women are not exactly different versions of men. We we have different symptomology and things present differently in women. And so if if something is shown to decrease triglycerides, it's probably something that was studied in men and not women. And we do prescribe it. I, I'm not saying that we don't. We do prescribe fish oil right. time for hypertriglyceridemia. But in this case, I think it's important to really look at the studies and, and I don't have the studies in front of me, but to look at the studies and see you know, whether it was both genders. That's, I think that's that's something that we have to be cognizant of. Right. I know that for for depression, at least one study was done on postmenopausal women. Okay. Uh, For cognitive function, it just says adults. And for the triglyceridemia, it does not really state. So I assume you're right that it was done in men uh, or at least a combination <laughs> of men and women. I, I, you know, I could do some digging, but it doesn't state for, for that particular one. Uh, but then good news is that there is actually a study on menopausal women and menopausal symptoms. And that's one of the reasons I use omega-3 fatty acids so much. And specifically, it helps with frequency of hot flashes and night sweats. That's great. Now with that one, 1500 milligrams is the guideline, but the most important part of it is EPA, at least a thousand milligrams of EPA. So depending on what we're trying to treat, you know, you want higher amount of EPA versus DHA. That's why I usually set the bar high to where we could hit, you know, all the goals. So can you um, take too much of it though? Can you take too much 
fish oil? Is there a, an upper um, limit? There is, you know, they, there is really no upper limit per se because there's a prescription kind. I mean, if we want to go off of the prescription recommendation, it's actually really high. The deal is that we've heard and it's been reported that fish oil could increase the risk of bleeding. Yeah. So is there a study behind it? Studies or reviews have not substantiated those findings. So we don't really, you know, even though it does happen that you hear about it, yeah. we don't really have a study to back it up saying, yes, it does cause That's bleeding. interesting because, this, you know, I'm a surgeon, right? And the, exactly. surgical, the surgical literature has always said that if you're going to do an invasive procedure, an elective procedure on somebody who's on fish oil, they have to be off it for two weeks. Yep. You know, exactly. Things like fish oil and naproxen, what else? I mean, right. because I think the literature does show that fish oil increases bleeding time. It may not increase, you know, it may not decrease platelet function or clotting factors, but it does increase bleeding time according to the literature that I've read. And that could be, I mean, this, the studies that they're citing, it says it's been suggested that fish oil supplements increase the risk of bleeding due to their antithrombotic properties. However, systemic reviews have not found this theory to be substantial. Interesting. So very interesting, but but I still, I'm with you and I always tell my patients, check with the surgeon. <laughs> and in my opinion, you should are on the safer side and go off of it for a couple of weeks before surgery. I sure. agree. Now, the other part of overdosing fish oil has to do with the toxicity of the fish oil. So I, you know, I started my uh, conversation with you about how to pick a good fish oil, right? We started talking about the ingredients, EPA and DHA. But then the second part of it is the toxicity. Is the product clean enough? Is it free of mercury and other toxins? Or are we actually taking a ton of fish oil and putting in a ton of toxins in our system. So that's why you have to stick with a good brand that shows third-party testing, meaning their in-house testing saying, oh yeah, we're very pure and clean is not going to cut it for us. We need another company to actually test the the product and, and show that it's pure and clean. So you want an independent study that, that says that there's, it's free of toxins. And, and it's really interesting mm-hmm. because there are all sorts of products out there it, because the supplement industry is a multi-billion dollar industry, right? And the whole, exactly. like, like let's, let's get healthy, kind of let's, you know, I mean, look at goop. Okay. And, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, is that you can have a clinical study that will prove just about anything. And so for the listeners and for the, you know, the people who are watching, anyone reading the transcript, here's the deal, right? Clinical studies don't mean anything unless they're double blind and placebo controlled. And I can make any, this is how the tobacco industry got away with what it did for so long in the sugar industry. And so it's really important to know that, that these studies, they're just, you know, you can manipulate data any way you want. That's true. That's yeah. very true. So you, you've got to have that testing, you know, the proof that it's actually clean and free of toxins because mercury specifically is a big one. That's why, you know, when I look at the fish oil bottles, the first thing that I look at, you know, besides the amount of EPA and DHA is which fish does it come from? Uh, the smaller the fish, the cleaner usually. Uh, so if you have like, you know, sardines and anchovies as the first two sources of omega-3 fatty acids, that's better than having the large fish. Now, krill oil is a good source, but it does not provide as much EPA and DHA as really are looking for. So you have to take a, a lot of krill oil pills to actually get the amount that you want. Another thing with fish oil is that I hear about this, and I'm sure you've heard about it, that 
some fish oil smell rancid or fishy and it gives you that burp that, that, yeah. that's so disgusting. Okay. When we look at on average, the industry, on average, it takes 18 months from the time that the fish is caught until you know the, the fish oil is extracted and put into capsules and it's on the shelf for you and I. 18 months is a long time. That's why they go rancid. So there are certain companies that I'll put the link, I'll give you the link at the end, but there are certain companies that actually stand behind their product and they say, no, ours isn't, we guarantee that it's not going to be more than two months mm -hmm. uh, or 30 days, whatever, you know, because they want that freshness. So there's something about uh, fish oil. That, that's why there's, it's so hard to, to pick a good fish oil because there are so many different criteria to look at. But once you educate yourself, you can actually get a good one and get the benefits from a good fish oil. Well, there is another way to avoid that fish burp too, and that's to keep your fish oil in the freezer. Uh, you just have to remember to take it then if it's in the freezer, but that's one thing. All right. So moving on from fish oil, what else do you have to talk to us um, about? Oh, you know what? One more thing about fish oil is okay. it's got great anti-inflammatory benefits. So does so that mean for, that it can help with chronic pain? You know, the study has shown, has been done on rheumatoid arthritis wow. showing great benefits. So again, that one was a higher dose, you know, 1,350 milligrams or up to 3,000 milligrams. So you know, it, it is a higher dose, but we definitely can see some good benefit from uh, for anti-inflammatory. Cool. Now, we want to talk about vitamin D, which vitamin everybody D. knows about. And it's been like all in the news and everybody, pretty much everybody knows they've got to check their vitamin D. They've got to take vitamin D. So vitamin D is a pro-hormone, meaning that once, you know, it, it exists in our skin. And then once the UV light hits our skin, our skin actually converts it to uh, vitamin D, which is used for us. And the number one thing that I always tell my patients about vitamin D is that you've got to know your number, your level, your blood level before you attempt to correct it or you know take whatever that you, you want to take. That's really important. It depends on whose recommendation you go by. So if you go by the recommendation for the Institute of uh, medicine, they say, okay, anywhere between 20 and 50 is a good range. But if you go with recommendations from the Endocrinology Society or the, the International Osteoporosis Foundation, the range is a little bit higher. So we say between 20 and 100 is what we're looking for. I usually like the vitamin D a little bit on the higher side than the lower side, although I never blindly just throw vitamin D at someone without checking their level periodically to make sure that we're not overdosing on vitamin and, D. And just because we're in the age of corona and the research is, it's pretty conclusive that people who have low vitamin D have a high, have worse infection rates with corona and worse outcomes. And it's, I think it's really important that we make sure that we're, you know, we're taking vitamin D and, and if you're not taking it or you don't know what your level is and you want to start taking it, make sure you go see somebody who can actually check your blood and, and check your level and make sure. But almost everybody needs vitamin D. The thing is, is that you can take too much of that. So let's talk a little bit about what happens when we take too much vitamin D. Well, too much vitamin D can actually backfire. And uh, first of all, it's an oil-soluble vitamin, so it mm -hmm. could accumulate in your body and it could cause problems. It's not like vitamin B that you could just flush out of your system, you pee or, it out. But, or vitamin C. <laughs> or vitamin C, <laughs> yeah. for that matter, right. 
So it does definitely affect, uh, you know, it could stay there and it could actually backfire as far as your bones. So instead of helping your bones, it could actually harm that bone building property or, you know, benefit that vitamin D could, could give you. Okay. Yeah. There's like, uh, what is it? Vitamin D hyper. I can't remember the term. There's a, I can't remember it. I was just looking at it the other day, but you can definitely take too much vitamin D and right. that, that can be a problem, but it's, the main so thing I, is to get your te- your get your test you know your blood mm-hmm. tested regularly. Right. So uh, you know I just have a couple of things um, about vitamin D. The benefits of vitamin D. Sure. You mentioned the immune function, and that's so true. It's actually been studied, and it does help with the immune function. But then also it's been specifically studied for upper respiratory infections, and it has shown to help benefit. Uh, prevent upper respiratory infections. The mm. other benefits I talk about is depression. A vitamin D can actually, not every case of depression is because of vitamin D, but low vitamin D could contribute to depression. And when we replace the vitamin D, the symptoms could definitely improve. Muscle strength, very interesting that, you know, it, this one is on postmenopausal women uh, and it showed that it actually could improve hand grip and the sway, you know, the, the balance. Hmm. So very important for muscle strength. And then of course, you know, for osteoporosis, fracture prevention, there's a ton of studies there. It helps uh, alongside calcium and magnesium and vitamin K. There's more and more studies on pre-diabetes and diabetes prevention and helping it. So specifically with uh, pre-diabetic patients, you know, we we see 2,000 to 3,500 units a day. But again, I never recommend you start on on vitamin D without checking your levels. And with type 2 diabetes, up to 4,000 units a day. So there is some correlation correlation too, because I had to study to retake my board certification a few years ago. And we have to know about breast cancer, even though we don't do it as general surgeons anymore because there's breast surgeons who stay on top of that. But there was a, it's a pretty interesting correlation between low vitamin D levels and worse outcomes with breast cancer. And I thought that was pretty interesting and in mm-hmm. how there are certain things that can contribute to worse outcomes with cancers, all cause. And one of them is dairy intake. So cow's milk, we're the only species that eats another species milk and, uh, and vitamin D. And I thought, I thought that was pretty interesting. That is interesting. With, with regards to cow's milk, this is my two cents. Is, is it really exposing women to a higher amount of estrogen that we don't need or we, you know, our body does not even have usually because it's cow's milk? I mean, that could be part of the reason. It, it could be, but remember, if you're drinking low-fat milk, you're getting a lot of testosterone. And so the the bigger issue really is the milk protein casein. And it seems that cancer cells really like that. And so that's, I mean, that's all preliminary research, but it's it's enough for me that I I really limit dairy intake because it's like, I don't want to get sick. And I feel better. I feel better. Yeah. Yeah. I feel better when I, so it's interesting. I I recently had a birthday. And so on my birthday, I eat whatever. Thank you. (laughs) Once a year, I give myself the permission to just have whatever. And so what did I have? I had we had Mexican food. It was delicious. My favorite food. And I had a burger from Five Guys, which was awesome with cheese on it and French fries. And I had two milkshakes that day. And the next day I had shoulder pain that I never have. And I realized it's probably a combination of sugar and dairy. So yeah, it's really, it's really fast. Usually if I eat crappy, I, it, I don't feel it for a couple of weeks, but that mm-hmm. one I felt the next day. <laughs> 
Oh, you can't out supplement a bad diet. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, it's a once a year. It's all right. I mean, I'm not perfect. I mean, I'm pretty good at my diet most days of the year. And once in a while, I'll, I'll go off the rails and that's okay. So anything else on vitamin D? I think that's uh, that's plenty. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to talk about what form to take because okay. as you know, again, when you go to the store, there's the capsules and then there's the drops and there's tablets that you put under your tongue. It's been my experience that usually the drops work the best. And of course, sublingual or under the tongue tablets uh, work pretty well too. So sometimes patients come to me and their vitamin D level is very low. And when I talk to them, they, they say that they've been taking this vitamin D 5,000 units for the past you know, two years. And I ask, I say, are you taking it consistently? Because as soon as you stop taking vitamin D, your level drops essentially. Mm. And when they tell me, yes, you know, I'm, I'm very good at taking it. I put it in my pill box, whatever. Then that's when I question the quality of the vitamin D because nobody should be taking 5,000 units a day on a regular basis and still have a low vitamin D level. Agreed. So uh, for that reason, I'm very particular about what kind of vitamin D uh, you're taking from what source. And all that. So how can we, I mean, so you've talked about good sources now for both of these fat soluble vitamins, you know, you did the mm -hmm. DHA and EPA and then now vitamin D. So how do we know what is a good source? You know, one of the places that I put my patients um, for seeing my recommendations, my specific recommendations is a place called Full Script. And I'll, I'll give you the link so they can use the link with my name because otherwise Full Script does not sell to patients on a regular basis, you have to be referred by a healthcare provider. Okay. But essentially, a lot of the things that are on full script are actually better quality products. They, they are by companies that try to do more studying on them and have a little bit more proof that it's, it's of good quality. Mm -hmm. But full script is my favorite go-to place to, to get these supplements. I know we've talked about Amazon before. I don't like ordering a lot of the supplements from Amazon just because I don't know the quality, but you know, some of these companies like Orthomolecular or Metagenics uh, or Designs for Health, they definitely discourage people from getting those things from or their products from Amazon or any other resource because you don't know how, you know, how it's been kept and where it's been. And they don't want to risk their own reputation because they, they do so much sure. work. I mean, um, I, will say, I will say that Gaia which is mm -hmm. a somewhere you, you can buy Gaia on Amazon. Mm -hmm. I will say that their their products are are pretty good, and right. you know they do some rigorous screening and they do whatever testing and stuff. So I would say that that if if you don't want to pay extra, because sometimes I mean you know let's face it, people don't want to pay. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and it adds and, up. Yeah, it does, and mm -hmm. so but Gaia is a good source, and so I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, of all the supplement brands out there, Gaia is one that I take regularly. There's some others like for magnesium mm -hmm. and things like that. But at this point, that's, you know, I would say that if you're going to go on Amazon, then that would be the one that, that I would recommend. And if you want to make sure that everything that you're, that you're getting is, you know, really on the up and up, then follow the link that's on the bottom of this, you know, this podcast. Yep. So moving on from vitamin D, what's next? Moving on. Okay. So have you ever heard of curcumin? Curcumin, of course. Of course. <laughs> okay. Curcumin, of course, comes from turmeric, which is an herb. It's a, you know, the root of an herb. And you could be taking this much turmeric. Um, I'm giving you visual, this much turmeric powder. It's like a handful. <laughs> Right. But then you could be getting the extract of it, which is curcumin, in two tiny capsules. 
Um, so I always say, well, because we can't really eat that much turmeric every day, we really need to, to stick with curcumin. And curcumin has got great anti-inflammatory benefits and it's a great antioxidant. So that goes after the free radicals that cause cancer. Curcumin is one of my very favorite supplements out there. It's great for joint pain, any kind of inflammatory issues that you may have. And you have to be careful with curcumin. Again, you know, one is that you want it to be curcumin and not just turmeric. The second thing is that you want to, to get it in a form that's absorbable. A lot of them have added black pepper or bioparin to it, which makes it a little bit, you know, absorb a little bit better. But again, different companies make different things. If something works for someone and they come to me and they say, I've been taking it and it works, that's great. I never attempt to change it for them. But if it doesn't, if your curcumin has not been working for you, then you may want to look into getting a better one that would have better absorption. Yeah. I mean, black pepper, it's, it's really interesting because we know when you look at regional cuisine, there's a lot of turmeric is used in certain parts of India, for example, right. and it's always put together with some sort of a pepper. It's it, it, when you look at, I mean, that, that goes way, way back to Ayurveda. And it's so interesting that now here we are studying these things and this ancient medicine mm -hmm. from, from five, 6,000 years ago is still relevant. Oh, absolutely. I love you know, that. I was born in Iran, so I'm very familiar with Persian cuisine. Mm -hmm. And I remember from the time that I kid, I remember my mom cooking. Of course, she cooked everything from scratch and I tried to do the same, but that was the base of most of everything that she would make. She would put a little bit of oil and then, you know, she would saute onions or whatever. And then the next thing is always turmeric and then black pepper. That, yeah. that, that went together. She always told me, this is the recipe for, you know, beginning almost every stew that she made. Wow. That's great. But, but the thing is that we are not, I mean, honestly, I actually brought that up at a conference that they were talking about curcumin. And I said, you know, patients are telling me that they're eating, you know, turmeric in their foods. Is that enough? And that's when the, the lecturer actually said, no, you can take this much turmeric, but you, you really need the curcumin, which is the extract of it, which is like yeah. 10 to 12 times more potent, I guess. That's uh, but either way, I mean, it's great to get it from your food, put it in your drinks. But if you're looking for that anti-inflammatory antioxidant benefit, you want to get the extract, which is curcumin. Great. So what do you think the benefit is? I mean, with the anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, people with say, maybe some chronic pain, fibromyalgia, would you recommend that? Do you, do you see that people have good benefit from taking that? I do. I do see a great benefit in most of my patients taking it. Occasionally, like once the blue moon, you may find someone who is allergic to curcumin for some reason. Okay. I mean, it's a natural product and you know, anything, you could be allergic to anything pretty much. Um, so if you're not allergic to it and if you can tolerate it, occasionally I do see gastric upset, you know, stomach upset. And if that's the case, you know, you may want to back off or try splitting the dose, taking it with meals, you know, et cetera. But usually I do see very good results because years ago, I've been a pharmacist for 30 years. So years ago, I used to see a lot of patients being on glucosamine chondroit and they said that, yeah, it does help some with joint pain. Then there were some studies and no study could prove that it actually, you know, helps. But I told my patients, I said, if it works, do take it. It's okay. Mm -hmm. As long as you're not diabetic, because there's a contraindication. But with curcumin, you're actually getting the antioxidant benefit 
as well as the anti-inflammatory benefits. So if you can tolerate it, and if you don't mind taking you know, so many supplements every day, I strongly recommend that you, you start. Well, that is an issue, cooking. right? Mm-hmm. That is an issue yep. because like, I don't, I mean, I'll, you know, after a while I get really tired of taking a lot of pills. And so I'll take breaks from different pills. Like I take break from fish oil because yep. I, I mean, it's just the pills are big and they, ugh, you know, so. Yeah. You but, have to be very disciplined. Sometimes with turmeric or uh, curcumin, I say, you know, take the, the capsules and open them and put the powder in whatever drink that you're drinking you know, or the smoothie or shake or whatever you're making in the morning. And the same with vitamin D, for example, you know, if you're using the drops, you could put that in there. So there's a few of them that you could uh, actually put in whatever you're making for breakfast mm, to take. That's great. But you're right. It, it's hard and you have to be really disciplined. You know, I, I think, I talked about was it whole body collagen last time uh, and the benefits of collagen and it's a powder. Uh, the beauty of that one is that it doesn't smell like anything. It doesn't taste really like anything. But what I do is, you know, I add that to water and then I add some of the calcium powder uh, with, you know, magnesium and all that in there and just kind of drink it. So you have to be a little bit creative to get everything down because otherwise it's a whole meal. If, you know, by the end of the day that you think, okay, how much more can I take? I get that. So let's, let's talk about magnesium for a minute. Uh, as oh my a supplement. gosh, you read my mind. Yes. Magnesium is my next and one. So I did a podcast with a woman all about, she, she had some osteoporosis and, and she was at the, the, I can't remember, but she was at the end of her, pe- of her tether and she started taking this special magnesium, this red blood cell magnesium. And I didn't know anything about it. And I had to put an amendment at the addendum at the end of the podcast saying, yeah, this is a real thing. So maybe we could talk just a little bit about red cell magnesium. And that's very interesting that you mentioned it because a few years ago, I did not know about it either. So yeah. it's kind of relatively new, but the RBC magnesium or red blood cell magnesium is actually a test that most laboratories should be able to to draw. Um, So there's nothing really strange about it, but it shows actually a a much more accurate reading of your magnesium level. And to raise that, yes, there's different magnesiums that you could take. I usually recommend magnesium orotate for, for patients who really need magnesium as part of whatever we're trying to treat, whether, you know, I've, I've actually used that for patients with atrial fibrillation. Okay. Let's magnesium orotate. Orotate. Yes. O-R-A-T-A-T-E. O-R-O-T-A-T-E. Okay. What is the difference between magnesium orotate? I usually recommend magnesium glycinate. So magnesium. Okay. And and that's my next one. So magnesium glycinate is my, uh, my other one. And I, that's my go-to. But orotate, from what I understand, helps uh, much better with cardiac conditions like atrial fibrillation. Now, do I have a study to back it? No, I don't. But I know that some of the doctors are recommending orotate for AFib. My go-to for for raising magnesium level, uh, and remember, 99.9% of the patients who come to me do not have the RBC magnesium level checked. But I just go to phospho-related magnesium glycinate. And it works really well. Um, yeah. So we, we talk about, because so many women in menopause start to get headaches, some women get migraines for the first time in their lives with menopause. And what I found, I used to get migraines and I had migraines so bad that I was, I was taking Topamax and I was also taking, what are those, the 
injections or not the injections. Oh, Imitrex and all Imitrex, that. yeah. I was taking, yeah. I was getting so many headaches and I finally said, well, this is ridiculous. And I, and I heard that if you take magnesium, you might stop getting headaches. And so I started taking magnesium and lo and behold, I never have to take any of those things. And what happened when I was taking Topamax, so Topamax is an anti-seizure medication, but it's used also for migraines. But what happened was I started having some cognitive issues, like I couldn't recall words. And another happy side effect of Topamax is weight loss. And so I lost a bunch of weight, but I like, it didn't do any good because I couldn't think. And so I had to figure out a way to get off the Topamax. And then, and when I started taking magnesium, I take, I don't know what the milligrams is, but I take four tablets a day and keeps away the joint cramps, the, the, the muscle cramps that, that mm -hmm. often come from as much exercise as I do. And it also helps with, head, I rarely get, I mean, I wake up with like, you know, a little muscle tension and stuff, but nothing like I used to get these migraines that's stuck in my eye. I agree with you. Actually, again, based on um, the study that uh, was done, they're saying 600 milligrams of magnesium per day actually prevented migraines from, from happening. 600 milligrams is a good dose although some people may or may not be able to, to actually tolerate. So what I do with patients is I usually say, we'll start with 250 and then increase it gradually to see, you know, you could go as high as maybe 750 to 1,000 milligrams of magnesium a day. But the side effect of magnesium uh, can be diarrhea and stomach right. upset. Right. Uh, usually with the magnesium glycinate, I don't see as much. It's usually much better tolerated, and I tell patients to take it at bedtime because it does have a relaxing benefit, and it, it helps with sleep. There are some other studies that show that it actually may help with depression. Again, mm. 320 milligrams a day. Hypertension or high blood pressure, it could actually help up to 450 milligrams a day, and definitely with muscle cramps and you know feeling really tight. So yeah. magnesium is one of my favorite supplements and it does help, you know, work uh, in conjunction with calcium and vitamin D, vitamin K to help with your bones. If you can tolerate it, definitely. What about the spray on magnesium? If you get like for restless legs and stuff, have you ever had anybody use that? I've seen the creams actually. Some companies carry the creams. If it works for you, that's great. I really don't have any data to prove that it works. It should absorb to a certain extent depending on the base that they're using or if it's a spray. You know, I don't know what they're using to to help penetrate the magnesium into the skin or through mm -hmm. the skin into the, the muscle. Got but it. if it works for you, that's great. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's basically, we, we talked about, you know, everything. Uh, uh, there's a lot of data about muscle cramps and all that. Yeah. Um, I, I also want to say that I was having a lot of, I'm pretty athletic and I run or swim or bike or, you know, that kind of thing five to seven times a week. And a few months ago, I was having a lot of muscle cramps and I was, I upped my magnesium and I was still getting muscle cramps and they were bad. I was, they were waking me up at night. I wasn't able to move my feet in a certain way. And when we added some B vitamins, that took away the muscle cramps. And so I just want to say that if you're somebody who's having a lot of muscle cramps, you might want to take, you know, maybe take a, a B vitamin supplement. Do you want to talk to that for a second? You know what? B vitamin is going to be with the next set of, uh, the, the next interview, because okay. there's a lot about B vitamins that I wanted to, to talk about. So That's going to um, be supplements for menopause yeah. part three. We're going to talk about B vitamins. <laughs> so stay tuned to the podcast. We're going to have Dr. Green back. Yeah. What's, so what's, I, our, I what's our next 
one. Well, we have another one, one on the... we could, yeah, we could talk about probiotics. Oh yes, probiotics let's do that. Are, are we'll, huge. We'll close with okay. probiotics. Yeah. Okay, like sounds good. Probiotics. Basically, the the term probiotic literally means promotion of microorganisms. So when you're taking a probiotic, you're essentially putting back some of these bacteria and the yeast and spores back into your system where it would, they're good for you. They're actually, you know, they help with a lot of different things. So what are they helping with? Well, before we get to that, I want to, again, my, the criteria for picking a good probiotic is very important. These are live microorganisms, meaning that they can be very sensitive to the temperature and the, the pH and acidity and all that. So we want to make sure that we actually get the right one that has been tested, that it's still alive on the shelves when the customer goes to the shelf and picks one up. Usually a lot of them are very temperature sensitive. So in general, I've always recommended get the ones that are refrigerated, but you know, not always because there are some patented ones or process patented ones that actually put, you know, they, they're spores and they're more heat resistant. So not always, but in general, I say get the ones that are refrigerated. They, you know, we've heard that they're great for your GI system or gastrointestinal system, because as you know, that's your microbiome and there's a ton of the microorganisms in there uh, making vitamins and uh, you know defending your body. It's great for some people, most people, for um, IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, for gassiness, bloating, things like that. But more and more studies are coming out showing that it could actually help boost your immune system. So that's very interesting. So stay tuned on that one because there is so much data coming out showing that a good probiotic could definitely help your immune system. I would wonder if it would have something to do with depression as well. Seeing I was going to talk have, about that. Uh, yeah, seeing as we yes. have another brain pretty much in, inside of yeah. our mesentery. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, when, when it comes to our gut, you know, there's more and more data, again, the last few years, recent years, showing that our gut is very much related to our brain. So our mental health has a lot to do with our gut. And if we don't have the, you know, the good bacteria in the gut, then it affects the neurotransmitters or the chemicals in the brain. And that could definitely lead to depression. So they are doing a lot of studies on taking uh, good probiotics to help with depression. That's a very true thing. So definitely, you know, autoimmune disorder, or disorder boosting your immune system, you know, helping with depression, helping with your gut health in general. Those are the benefits. Now I have one company that has a study on their probiotic showing that in this study, women actually lost weight taking their probiotic. Now we're going to sell it actually, a bunch of them now. <laughs> oh, you have no idea. You know, I could be standing in front of the pharmacy and telling people about gut health and how these probiotics help you and it won't, the, the products won't sell as much as I just stand there for half hour and announce that this actually helps with weight loss. So, you know, I do use it. I do recommend it. And again, once we give you the link, you'll see what I'm talking about. I do recommend it, but not just because it may help with weight loss, but because it's a good probiotic. What's the name of it? It's Ultra Flora Control. Ultra Flora Control. It's by Metagenics. 
and it's available on full script as well. It is kept in the refrigerator. Now, is that the best probiotic for your general health? In my opinion, no, because when we are looking at probiotics, we are looking at a couple of different criteria. We started talking about how they're stored and how much you know shelf life they can have, but also we're talking about the number of microorganisms or it's called CFUs in each dose. That's really important. And also how many strains of probiotics there are. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about a very good probiotic that's broad spectrum, we want at least seven different strains of probiotics in there. But if we're talking about specifically, you know, this particular probiotic, what is this used for? And in their study, they're saying that this is their patented formula and it helps with weight loss. That's different than providing everything else that we're looking for. Sure. I just want to say that if, if you're getting a probiotic and it doesn't include lactobacillus bifidum, it's not a probiotic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's, that's the number one Absolutely. But bacteria you have to be careful with lactobacillus, again, because it could be related to dairy, some people who cannot tolerate dairy products can have a hard time with it. And they may actually get more gassy and bloated and uh, get diarrhea. So you have to be really careful and selective. And that's why it's just not one size fits all. You have to know what you're doing. And I feel bad for customers just going to the shelves and trying to pick one that's the right one for them. Yeah. And considering the price and the dosage and how many do you take, you know, all of that. Sure. So, well, and of course, oh, I'm sorry, oh, one more thing yeah. that I should mention about probiotics and postmenopausal women, because that's our audience, is that probiotics can be extremely important in your vaginal health because oh, yes. as your hormone levels change, the pH or the acidity of the vaginal tissue changes, and that could affect the good bacteria. So, some of the good bacteria could, could get destroyed in the non-friendly pH of the uh, vaginal tissue. Therefore, it's very important to put back the, the good bacteria in your system. So one of the ways would be taking an oral probiotic, but then there are also other ways that can be, you know, suppositories or, you know, at a compounding pharmacy like ours, we usually make the probiotic vaginal creams that can be inserted vaginally to bring back the tissue to health in does addition that, to does doing that help other with, things. Does that help with vaginal dryness the same way your Fabivag does? No, it does not help with vaginal dryness because to, to help with vaginal dryness, you want to bring up the, the estrogen level or phytoestrogen level in that tissue. Okay. And probiotics do not do that. They, they would simply bring back the tissue to healthful amount of probiotics to prevent infections. So for example, for those women who get frequent vaginitis or urinary tract infections, yeast infections, this could be very helpful. For vaginal dryness, you want to either treat it by giving estrogen vaginal creams or Fabiovag, which is my product, which is over-the-counter, and it acts as a phytoestrogen, so it's very, very mild estrogenic, and it does bring back the, the vaginal moisture. And that's when I say you correct the pH level of the tissue. And by correcting the pH level and then putting back the probiotics, then you can maintain a healthy environment. Got it. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Menopause Movement Podcast. Again, Dr. Green, where can people find you? They can actually, you know, I rebuilt my website if they want to check out fabuvag.com. All right. That's F-A-B-U. 
V-A-G, just like Fabulous Vagina. And or they can email me at drsgreenrx at outlook.com. That's drsgreenrx at outlook.com. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Did you know that menopause is not a medical condition? Most doctors don't know this either. I like to say that menopause is the privilege of a long life. And to really take hold of our lives in menopause, we have to unlearn what society and the medical establishment has told us about menopause. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement.